there's a saying where it's work so work so hard that your idols become your rivals um and then part of the reason i got into pentathlon as well is my family got tickets to the modern pentathlon in london 2012 and this was before i'd started um and as part of what inspired me to take it up uh, take it up because i literally watched so it was mari spence and then uh, sam murray who won her silver medal and then like four years later 2016 they're my teammates and i'm just like mm. hold on I, wa I watched you at the olympics and now i'm training with you that was former gb modern pentathlete sarah collin i'm curtis mansfield and this is hips and dips Once again, I am sat here in front of my laptop ahead of another Zoom interview due to these ever-tightening COVID restrictions. My guest today is someone who is in the rare position of excelling in both sports and academia. Sarah was a member of the Team GB Modern Pentathlon Player Pathway Programme from 2014 to 2018. Starting with a GB Team Bronze Medal from the Prague Junior International Championships in 2014, this was followed by top 10 relay finishes in the European and World Junior Championships. This then led to the full adult GB Championships, bronze, silver and gold between 2017 and 2018. She then went on to become the Bucks as the British University College of Sport champion in 2017. She then coupled this with a degree and subsequent master's degree from the University of Bath in sports performance and research in health and well-being, respectively. Sarah was consistently recognised for her resilience and determination. In 2019, she was nominated for the Chancellor's Prize for consistently high academic results and contribution to sport at the University of Bath, and she also won the Cersei Redgrave Talented Athlete Bursary in 2017. Today's episode will study Sarah's experience of elite sport with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, as well as her injuries to her physical health and her mental health. It's going to be an exceptionally eye-opening experience for me and I'm sure for you as well. And if any of you are affected by any of these issues or you know anyone who is affected, please find more information on the NHS website or BEAT. It's now time for me to hand over to the amazing Sarah Collin. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the pod. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank you for having me and giving me this opportunity. I'm a little, little nervous about talking about my experiences, but here we are. That's fine. It's great to have you. Um, so as you, I think you listened to episode previously, uh, and I always start with this very basic question, how has 2020 affected you and your health from that mental, physical and social point of view? So very open question. How has 2020 been for you? Yeah, it's been all right. I mean, I think uh, like everyone, it's been quite up and down, uh, had a lot of big challenges to big challenges and big changes to cope with. It's the longest time I've been at home with my mum uh, since before university. I'd only ever spend about two weeks at home in the holidays. So being at home for what nine months now is a, is a change. Um, and then I had plans to move to Canada in September 
uh, but that's been put on hold obviously and then there was this I think a lot of people our age and uh, at this point are going through this went through the soul destroying process of job hunting um, and I think the position that I'm in now was like job application number 27 or something um, but overall I mean the past couple of years and having to deal with mental health anyway I've become very social like uh, self-aware of when I'm feeling down and so I have kind of the mental resources to cope with it uh, physically I'm kind of I mean my main sport is swimming so having the pools shut was a bit of a bummer um, but I'm very fortunate to live in the middle of the countryside so finding running routes and cycling routes is not too difficult uh, we live very close to the Thames and an open water swimming lake as well so especially with the hot summer it was just a dream to be able to swim just outdoors which is fine um, yeah, it must be nice yeah yeah but I think the uh, main thing actually from both the physical and the mental side it's actually been really nice to have a bit of a break and step back and realize that being productive all the time is just not sustainable and actually like I don't know binge watching half a series of the crown in bed for a day might actually be good for you rather than rather than the opposite yeah definitely I um I actually was a swimmer when I was younger up until I was oh, 18 yeah. uh, obviously not to your lofty standards but I did like county level and so on and oh, that's pretty good going though yeah but pretty much throughout uni I dwindled off my interest in swimming so from, uh -huh. from when I joined it slowly became less and less a passion of mine and uh but throughout this lockdown period I actually sort of rediscovered it so going back yeah um when the swimming pools reopened in that nice two or three months we had between lockdowns I got back into swimming every day started yeah. getting like good times getting back not far off my pbs from when I was younger <laughs> and stuff so wow yeah no you're I actually had probably opposite experience yeah I really kind of fell in love again with swimming from the uh from that lockdown period yeah okay and I think oh no Karen sorry no 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 you 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 finish what you're gonna say oh well one of the things I was uh gonna say is that I think for a lot of people as well lockdown and 2020 has sort of made them realize like uh as you said kind of fall in love with sport again because when we had only like one hour of exercise outside a day people were just like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna use it and then they took advantage of it and then oh, actually oh, I really enjoy this now I really enjoy running or something so I think um, a lot of people just fell back in love with sport or fell in love with sport if they were just picking it up. So I think it's been quite good in that respect. Yeah, I mean, you learn to take nothing for granted. And yeah, definitely. whether that be like the local gym or the swimming pool or your hockey team, rugby team, um, every session becomes like a, a much more enjoyable experience because you really crave that gym session, whereas it used to be like a chore, like, oh, it's another gym session, yeah. another swimming session. Um, I remember when I was younger, like swimming was always a bit, it became a bit of a chalk, you know, every day. Repetitive. <laughs> yeah. But suddenly when it was taken away from you, you realise actually I love that experience. So getting back into it was really, um, was really key. So what I'm interested with you actually is you're a recent graduate from university mm -hmm. and you've been thrown into this world of work where normally you've got long commutes and, uh, you know, office parties and conversations about mm. the water cooler and so on. You've had none of that because you've started your work life from home. Um, how's that been? Uh, well, it might actually be a, a different response to what a lot of people in my position would say or what you might expect or the majority might think. But I actually, I actually love working from home. <laughs> um, so when I somehow managed to land the job that I'm currently in after the weeks of applying to different jobs, um, I was very lucky to be given a contract with flexible working hours. So as long as I do the eight hours in the day, it doesn't matter which 
uh, like what time I do them. So it suits me quite well. So like, for example, I'll go for a swim in the morning, work for four or five hours, go for a run or a cycle at lunchtime or meet a friend for coffee and then work the rest, rest of the time after that. Um, I never exactly envisaged myself in an office job anyway. Uh, anyone who knows me know I cannot sit still for an extended period of time. Uh, so by being at home, I feel like I have at least that little bit of freedom to get out and move if I need to. Um, and it makes me feel a lot more in control and a lot more independent than I would be if I was in an office. So I don't, and I don't really feel like I'm missing out too much on having the social life because I've got a lot of great friends close by anyway. And the ones who are further away, uh, we keep in touch fairly regularly anyway, be it virtual party or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I want to say I'm hating it, but I'm actually not because I just get a lot of uh, freedom and independence the way my contract's set up. So yeah, it's, it's not so bad. <laughs> okay, well, that's, yeah, that's not bad at all. Um, okay, so I'm actually a little bit torn in which way to take this conversation at the start. Because okay. obviously you're an elite athlete. Um, I said I mentioned introduction, you've had great success with GB and sort of modern pentathlon and mm -hmm. national level and box level and so on. But obviously you're also a woman with interesting um, educational paths. So you've got your first class honours degree. Uh, you've got your master's degree from University of Bath. So we could take this mm -hmm. one or two ways. I'm going to choose initially to go down the academia route. I think, sorry, okay. the, um, actually I'm not. That's a lie. I'm going oh, down the, one. Uh, the sporting route. Um, Fine. And focus on this elite athlete side of you. So to start with, I guess, obviously you're a modern pentathlete, which I actually believe is false advertising. Um, I'm not quite sure why swimming, running, pistol shooting, fencing and horse riding is, is modern. Um, but I did do my research and found out apparently it's all the disciplines you need to be a great soldier behind enemy lines. Yeah, you have, in, uh, you have done your research. Back in 1912, yes, I did do it. And uh, <laughs> so we could start off by asking, do you think you'd make a great soldier behind enemy lines? I think so. The other one, the other one that I love as well is um, I'd either be great in the Hunger Games or I'd be great uh, on a zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> those are the other two comments I've had before. Uh, but my family actually has a military background. Um, I had both my uncles were RAF. I had a great grandfather in the military, like, and then military history the whole way back. Uh, so yeah, I reckon I'd be all right as a soldier, actually. <laughs> okay. Um... Anyway, so why modern pentathlon as your chosen sport? Um, obviously, I think quite often with multi-event sports, people have their initial sport they're good at and then the rest sort of have added on. So I think in your case, obviously you're involved in swimming. Uh -huh. yeah, just how, how did this modern pentathlon start? Well, you kind of, you kind of hit the nail on the spot there. Um, and it was actually a teacher who influenced me or pers persuaded, encouraged me to try it out essentially so I was on the cross-country team and the swim team at school and then pentathlon do this thing called the schools biathlon um, and it's essentially running and swimming and then there were taster sessions there of um, shooting pistol shooting so I was like oh I'll have a go because like I said my uncle's in the RAF he taught me and my brother and sister when we were much younger how to shoot and I was like oh I can shoot this will be fine and then I did and it got noticed and I was quite successful at this taster session um blowing my own trumpet a bit um and the per member of staff who was on there was just like oh you're quite good why don't you come along to this competition in six months time after a bit of practice and see where it goes from there 
so I, I went to that competition, uh, which was the regional competition, um, and then qualified for my first ever British Championships. Because uh, I think swimming and running, I'd only ever got to regional level. Uh, but by putting the two together plus shooting, I qualified for my first British Champs, ended up third at British Champs, my first ever one. And then so kind of like the talent scouting route went from there. So I kind of got identified from that and then just kind of put into the pathway. And then you learn how to fence, you learn how to horse ride whilst you're in the system. And I just kind of took off from there, I guess. I suppose I'm quite interested in how you divide your time as a pentathlete. Um, I mean, I think most, I could be wrong here, but I imagine most people who get involved in the elite side of pentathlon are probably more likely to be runners or swimmers who develop the other skills rather um, than being, say, a fencer, or is it quite an even mix? There's there's sort of two main ways that people get into it. The first is sort of the way I, I kind of came into it, it was have all the athletics first, so the swimming, the running, the fitness base, and then add the more skill-based ones on. Or there's something called Pony Club as well, and Pony Club run something called Pony Club Tetrathlon, which is all the sports in pentathlon apart from fencing. And there's a link with Pony Club and modern pentathlon. So sometimes they come from a more horse riding background, but can swim, can run, can shoot. Um, okay. So it's those two kind of pathways that merge. Um, and then you get, yeah, then you get the full five. And then when you were competing at the top, how would you divide up your training time? Would it be mostly on the track, most in the pool? Was it like a fifth, 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 fifth split? I mean, how did it work? Mm, not quite. So our main, the three main, oh, four maybe. Uh, so the three main actual sport disciplines that we focused on were running, swimming and fencing. We did sort of, I mean, we were training for like six hours a day. We'd do like an hour and a half in the pool. So it would usually go like an, yeah, an hour and a half running, an hour and a half in the pool two hour lunch break for lectures or whatever. And then like an hour and a half fencing, not quite daily, but almost. And then the other one was gym. We had a lot of gym work as well, because obviously to try and, well, to try and prevent injuries, it's not always the case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the main bulk was just making sure that we had the fitness and then the skill level. A lot of the time, for example, shooting, when we had our shooting practice, a lot of people would just come in individually to the range spend half an hour each day focusing on shooting skills, shooting practice, doing a lot of drills. Um, so it was mainly, yeah, mainly the athletics base. And then we had a brilliant ride instructor uh, down in Dorset, where I think it was every Wednesday, we'd do our running or gym session in the morning, drive down, I think it was like an hour drive, ride for two hours and then drive back again. So it was kind of, it's mainly like the strength and fitness stuff that we really did the most volume on um and yeah that's that's pretty much it I guess okay so you you took your so love of swimming turned into a passion for uh, modern pentathlon and then you took that all the way to the University of Bath and mm -hmm. the GB performance pathway and mm -hmm. um etc so from that moment on what really were the highlights for you in the sport um you know, I, I want to say it was the competing. Like I love, I love competing so much. I'm so competitive and I love the adrenaline and the nerves that you get when you're on start line. Um, but when I was thinking about this, I kind of, there's a saying where it's work so, work so hard that your idols become your rivals. Um, and then part of the reason I got into pentathlon as well is my 
family got tickets to the modern pentathlon in London 2012 and this was before I'd started um, and as part of what inspired me to take it up uh, take it up because I literally watched so it was Mari Spence and then uh, Sam Murray who won her silver medal and then like four years later 2016 they're my teammates and I'm just like mm. hold on I, wa I watched you at the Olympics and now I'm training with you like I loved the traveling and competing but it was like meeting these extraordinary people from all over the world uh, and hearing their stories and learning from them and I think that's really what stayed with me the most like I still I still talk to like Mari Spence who yeah I mean I watched her compete at the Olympics and now I have a phone number and we catch up every now and then it's just yeah something special I think yeah um I suppose I'm quite interested as someone who's had some success in sport but always been more in team sport so when it comes to individual sports mm -hmm. like my swimming days I, might, I got to an okay standard but it was very much at the back of the field yeah um what's it like to so obviously you've won multiple medals as a pentathlon team but mm -hmm. one for example was you were your British champion right individually is that correct one year uh uh, as a team, I've never got an individual gold at British Champs. I've had a couple yeah, of individual silvers, but we got a team gold. Yeah, and it's yeah. just where it's it's just where you're placed. So obviously, if you're first, you get a certain number of points. Second, you get a second number, and then the first three finishes of each country or each team. Um, yeah, so the first three members of each team, their points get added together, and then it's like a team base. So because all the national pentathletes, all the GB squad were based at Bath, it wasn't that uncommon for Team Bath to just get the goal, get the team gold. I see, okay. Um, yeah. But you did win uh, the Bucks Championships, right? Yes. British University yes. Sport. Um, that, was, that was a great day. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, what's, what's that like to stand on the podium knowing you're the best person in the field, in the country, out of all universities? Because I said, I've say never experienced that. So what's... Yeah. What's that like for people who don't know? Um, God, I think so. If, if we're taking Bucks Champs as an example, I think I just really enjoyed that day. I think it's just being able to stand on the podium and not only say, oh, wow, I beat everyone else, but it's just like, oh, I really enjoy this and I'm actually kind of good at it. Like, obviously, you've got to be kind of good to be that level, but to be on the podium and to be like, no, I'm, I'm really proud that I've been working so hard doing something that I love and actually I'm, it's paying off. Um, but Bucks especially, cause my, my sister, cause we don't live far away from where the Bucks is hosted every year. So my sister came and watched, and I think it was the first time she'd seen me compete. So it was obviously a good feeling to, you know, have like my mum, my sister there as well, watching and celebrating. So I think it's kind of like, it's, it's also nice to do it for them, you know, because obviously your family support you the whole way through. Or I was lucky enough to have family that supported me the whole way through my athletic career. And so it's just like, oh, I really enjoyed this day. I'm kind of good at it and I've done it for them. So it's like, yeah, it's a big mix of, and actually it's just, especially for pentathlon when you're competing for the whole day, it's just a bit of a relief to be at the end as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's all the events over one day then. It's one. Yeah, one day. day. Did you lead from the front? in that event or were you uh were you chasing at the end how did it how did that come about um I think my, my right my horse ride was a bit sketchy my horse riding was sketchy anyway um but actually yeah I think it was one of the best days of competition I've had where I've just like I don't, I don't know what it was I just hit the sweet spot every time 
won the fence, won the swim, um, and then held on in the run and shoot to, to enough to win it. My, um, my horse riding was a bit sketchy, isn't a phrase you hear <laughs> every day. <laughs> um yeah that's that's true come to think of it oh god <laughs> so i um i didn't tell you this but i actually watched a youtube video this morning oh, uh, <laughs> entitled alumna sarah colin uh, on resilience and motivation which was uh published by i'm assuming it was your school is that uh is it bexfield high school Beckinsfield High I have not seen this. Oh no. Oh, yeah, no it's, um, <laughs> it's an interesting video. Uh, the, whoever the cameraman was for the day or camera woman uh, decided only to film like your neck up. Oh, <laughs> so God. it's quite an interesting angle. And it's mostly oh, filming the wall. But, I remember uh, that speech. <laughs> regardless, so from that speech, I learned a little bit about your uh, your physical injury problems. Um, uh-huh which you experienced actually almost immediately when you got onto that GB pathway when you went to bar. Yeah. Um, so just fill us in a little bit on, I suppose, maybe a little bit more about how you actually got to bar in the first place and then uh, the injury that occurred and then your recovery from that injury. Sure. Um, well, once I started start pentathlon, um, the only place that I wanted to go as Bath because it's where the National Training Centre is. Um, I was really interested in sports science, so I applied to sports science and sports performance at Bath. Um, I also applied, I think, Exeter and Cardiff as well. Um, didn't get the grades for sport and exercise science, which I was gutted about. Um, so I was just like, do you know what? Doesn't matter. I just want to get to Bath so I can train and you know try and achieve this dream I have of becoming an elite athlete. Um, so I was gutted that I didn't get the grades, but actually. I'm so happy that I stuck with sports performance because I think I've learned so much more and uh, met so many more people through sports performance than I have with sport and exercise science. And I think it would have been a lot harder to balance the academics and the sport at the same time, whereas sports performance is designed so that athletes can train and work at the same time. Um, so at that point, I think it must have been the summer of, summer of year 13 before uni, I was only doing a maximum of like... I think it was 25 to 30 kilometers of running a week. And then in my first week of being at Bath with the GB team, I did like 50 kilometers, 40, 50 kilometers in a week. And which is, you know, over double what I was doing. And I have a history of weak bone density. And within the first four weeks of training, I was already on crutches with um, about an, an inch of a crack in my left, left hip. Yeah. Um, so it's a nice x-ray I've got uh from from that so it was just it was just doing too much too soon and my body just went no I don't like this and um yeah just just cracked <laughs> so it's the ultimate um example of overtraining and just yeah completely battering your body with obviously devastating effects okay so so that's how the injury occurred but then yes what's the what's the what was the road to recovery for you to get back to uh GB again uh, so I had a total of, so I was on crutches from October until end of February. So about three or four months. Um, then I couldn't run for like another three months. So I had, I literally had six months where the only exercise I could do was like upper body in the gym and pull in the swimming pool. And if again, anyone listening remembers this, I just, I hate swimming pool. 
so much. I hate not using my legs. <laughs> so, um, so I had six months just essentially doing very little. I then had another six months of complete rehab with an excellent SNC coach called Luke Vella, who was at Bath at the time, who literally just repaired my hip through rehab and strengthened me and gave me a really good running program so that the next year in next September, this must've been September, 2016 at that point, I was ready to rejoin the program. So I'd had a full year out of competition, a full year in rehab, but then come September, October, 2016, I just rejoined the performance team where I was at. And uh, from there just had the best season I've ever had. So 20, 2017 was my best season. Okay, so yeah, so you, that's a good, that's a good example of bouncing back. Um, yeah. For a very long layoff, it must have been easy during that, like such a long period, um, maybe to find a new passion. So maybe like, I know people had injuries at uni, maybe mm. you throw, throw yourself into academia or the arts or find a new sport. But mm. in your case, you decided to obviously persevere and come back in the same spot that you were before. Uh, which, yeah, I don't know if that's rare or common, really. I'd probably say more rare amongst people. I don't know. know. Um, well, I mean, I was kind of just like, I'm here. It's been one year. I'm not going to give up just after one year, you know. And I, I just loved it so much being in that atmosphere, training with Olympians, and it was just, oh, it was just a real buzz, I guess. So I was just like, oh, I can't just give up. You know, it will fix itself. It's not forever. Obviously, there are times, and I'm sure every athlete who's been injured will think this. There were times when I was just like, I'm never going to recover. I might as well quit. But I don't know. I think, like I said, Luke Vella. So he was an SNC coach, but he was also just such like one of the most brilliant guys, and he was so motivating. So he really helped. Um, oh, I had another point, but I'm trying to remember what it was. <laughs> Um, oh, I remember. So I also got taken off funding as well. So because I didn't compete, um, my funding got taken away because I wasn't meeting performance targets, which is a vicious cycle. Because if you get injured, you can't compete. Then it's just, yeah. So my, my funding got taken away. And I was just like, no, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. I'm going to come back and show you I am good enough for my funding. I am good enough to be on the programme. Um, and that's kind of exactly what I did with help from you know massive support from my parents and uh coaches and close friends um so it was kind of a it was the underestimation I was like I don't really like being underestimated like this so yeah and that's when I that's when I came back no no of course not um so, so yeah so I'm quite interested actually how does funding side of things work is it uh do you get more money based on better performance or is it um was that one sort of flat um, fee for the whole team is it, or is it no so the way the uk because uh pentathlon is a uk sport funded organization and you have different levels of funding so each athlete within the system will be placed on podium podium potential um or talent uh and then depending on your appraisals each year, depending on how you've done each season determines your funding. So I think there's different funding levels, like there's athlete A, B, C, D, E, I think it stops at. And then you also have TAS, which is the Talented Athlete Support, Talented Athlete Scholarship Scheme, which is for full-time students and full-time athletes, student athletes. So it's just like it, so sports can sort of sign on to TAS and they'll get a supports package for certain athletes who don't meet the criteria for podium potential or podium. 
Um, and it's all down to sort of the governing body and the performance directors who gets what kind of funding. So I was on, I was on TAS at that point, um, but my TAS funding and my TAS support got taken away because I didn't compete and I didn't perform. So um, but then I came back in, was it January? And they were just like, oh, you're actually doing quite well. So we're going to put you back on. Uh, it was, it was just, yeah, mind blowing really. Yeah, I've actually got on my notes here, um, uh, again, for my research off TAS, that uh, you were shortlisted for the most determined TAS athlete in 2017, and also for the most inspirational TAS athlete in 2018. That must be, uh, to be recognised, <laughs> I suppose, amongst your peers, that level must be quite rewarding for you. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was a shock. I think personally, I think it's because I can just talk a good story. Um, but I, d I don't know, honestly, because all the all the nominations are on anonymous. And I'm just like, so I'm still here to this day, just like who who on earth nominated me for these things? Um, I think the most determined one definitely came from the internal drive to be like, no, you took me off it once. You're not going to do it again. I can kind of recognize that and the like the overcoming the injury and carrying on. So I can recognize the determined one, but the inspirational one, I was just like, what the hell? <laughs> um, I was just like, oh, yeah, I just talk a good story. I'm quite, I'm quite a social person. So I just talk to everyone. So whether, it, you know, being friendly and just open and talkative is anything to do with being inspirational. I don't know, but um, yeah, yeah, no, they were, do you know what? I'm so proud of those ones because it's just really endearing to know that someone out there thinks of me that way enough to nominate me for something like that. Um, so yeah, it was a, those were nice surprises. <laughs> well, it must have been, yeah. Okay, so um, we're moving on now to what's going to form, I think, the bulk of this interview. Um, mm -hmm. So the crux of this interview is going to revolve around your battle with mental health uh, in sport mm -hmm. and this is a topic which I'm sure isn't particularly easy for you to be open about. So first, let me just uh, commend your bravery um, for coming on to talk about it. And obviously, let me reassure you that if you feel uncomfortable at any point, we can move on or omit any details. And so the power is still very much with you. Um, Thank you. I'm just here to, to listen and learn. Uh, how are you feeling then about sharing this? Um... A little bit terrified because uh, it's something I've lived with for a long time now um, and it feels a bit like a confession uh, because there's still parts of me that I feel are ashamed of what I'm about to talk about uh, but also I feel I'd be hypocritical if I did all this research about mental health and sport without talking about my own experiences. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's quite scary and quite nerve wracking, especially if there's anyone out there listening who doesn't know anything about this. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think it's the right time. I've done a lot of thinking and reflection in lockdown. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a good time to open up, I guess. Okay, great. I mean, I think it's gonna be a really inspirational story for many people and the real learning curve, um, not only for people who suffer with these conditions, but also people who might know someone who does or might interact with people who do and so on. So I think it's gonna be really good. So I suppose this big question here is this, uh, you walked away from your sport due to your mm -hmm. mental health and not mm -hmm. your physical health. So you're the first guest mm -hmm. I've had who's been that way around. So 
tell me about your journey to that decision to walk away while you're at the top. Uh, sort of from the very beginning. Shall I go? Just sort yeah, of... so let's, let's go from uh, being a teenager as a All swimmer right. and then kind of how your whole journey's intertwined to where you are now or where you were okay. in 2018 when you retired. Um, so kind of... It was almost it was almost in conjunction with starting pentathlon not quite i think this was so this all started a couple of years before i started pentathlon or about a year before uh, and when i was 16 i developed bulimia uh oh it's the first time i've said that <laughs> and it's a it's been a bit of an on-off journey with it um and from the ages of 16 to 18 i did very well recovering but then again in 2017 uh, it got worse again at the end of 2017, which is partly what led to my retirement late later in 2018. Um, it started as sort of just excessive exercise. Um, I don't know if anyone's watched the Freddie Flintoff documentary, but I related a lot to what he talked about. Uh, I went to North yeah, I found, High School. I, sorry, oh. I found that Freddie Flintoff really, um, mm. really eye-opening. I think I was really... I suppose, I mean, obviously it was interesting and emotional, but also really factual. Um, mm. I remember just when obviously you're, I, I don't know much about eating disorders, um, mm -hmm. but I remember the term he used when he spoke about how the condition's always with you. You don't really necessarily, yeah. you can be in remission if you like, and mm -hmm. you can be in sort of worse and better phases, but you're never sort of cured. And no. it's all about management. I think that was, that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I still, I still have a very interesting relationship with food. It's not, it's probably not what is considered normal, but it's, it's healthy. And you know what, and that's, that's the main thing. And it's interesting in that documentary, the practitioner that helped me throughout my hard time at Bath was actually in Freddie Flintoff's documentary as well. So that was really, really exciting to see. Um, but I guess it kind of started, um, and there's no blame here. I'm not putting blame on anyone, um, but I went to an all girls high school and I was there at a time when only a very few handful of girls in my year did like did sport to any intense level and I grew up swimming like I said so 14 15 16 years old I had that sort of typical big broad muscly swimmer shoulders um and often got teased for being called manly or beastly and at that age it's really hurtful to hear um so I think that's kind of when I took up running joined the cross-country team to literally just to slim down a bit um, and I convinced myself that I, I started running to improve my fitness for swimming. And then I'd just spend any lunch times or free periods just doing exercise and no one really questioned it. Cause they were just like, oh, Sarah's just training. So, so that was kind of normal, I guess. Um, and I think it was one summer holidays. I just lost a dramatic weight, like dramatic amount of weight over the summer holidays one year, came back to school and people were just shocked at how small I'd gotten. And I think that's when teachers started pulling me aside in the corridor, pulling me aside in lessons and just being like, are you okay? Is anything going on? And I was just like, oh, it's because I've just started this new sport, which means I have to train all the time. Um, and then actually that's kind of when it came around to my first GB trials with pentathlon and I got rejected literally because I was so unhealthily underweight. It had nothing to do with my performance, but it was because I wasn't at a healthy weight. So they couldn't accept me. Um, and that's that's when it kind of hit home and I was like oh no I should I should start proper therapy and I got put on medication which I only came off about I think I only came off in 2018 um, and 
learned a lot more of what I was going through isn't necessarily about food and the eating disorder. It's just what I was about, what I was in control of. And my, my later teen years were kind of, you know, they were interesting. My parents got divorced, I moved house, I was being bullied at school. Um, and the only thing that I felt in control of uh, was just my training and my exercise. It was just like a huge escape. And I was quite literally swimming and running away from my problems. And then when, you know, things started to improve with the medication and the therapy, and the therapy I had the second GB trials, uh, got through them, got the scholarship to Bath to train with the squad. Um, and then, yeah, like we talked about, my, within the first, first four weeks at Bath, I ended up on crutches and in a stress fracture. Um, and then obviously there's not much exercise you can do when you're on crutches. And that's when I started putting on weight. Um, again, I don't want to put any blame on anyone, but I was also in a, what I, I didn't realize at the time was a toxic relationship and I wasn't adjusting well to moving to university. Um, and that's when, because I couldn't do exercise, I was putting on weight, I started making myself throw up. And it was, uh, it felt awful because I just, I had lost all sense of control again and all the work over the past two years that I had, that I'd put in to recover just went. Um, so then once I was back on, back off the crutches, even, um, back in full-time training, I just gave myself extra training sessions. Like I wasn't doing enough already. Um, like what just, ex you know, extra walk bike sessions before training had even begun. And I was convincing myself again, oh, it's just to get fit after being on crutches. Um, when it just, it wasn't like that at all. Um, the difference this time was, like I said, 2017 was my best ever competitive season. So people, you know, I was getting selected for international teams. People were complimenting my performances. Um, people were saying how good I looked. I was getting, uh, this is really silly, but I was getting more attention from boys, <laughs> which looking back on, I'm just like, okay. Um, and I thought the answer was just essentially to keep losing weight. And in complete casual conversation, so this is one I'd lost a load of weight already, just complete casual uh, conversation one training session my coach just said something along the lines of oh you're you're quite big compared to the other girls maybe you could do with losing some more weight and I was just like you know I'm I'm training 25 hours a week I lifeguard as a part-time job I'm doing a degree there's literally you know I couldn't exercise anymore I couldn't work any harder I pretty much couldn't eat any less um so that's when I was just like you know what I've just got to start throwing up again um and then obviously I'm not refueling well, I'm not recovering well. So my performance just went to absolute, uh, I was about to use swear, it just went to absolute hell. <laughs> um, I really wasn't doing that well. And then I had, so 2018, I had a lot of personal problems going on as well. Um, and it's also, it's also tricky because I'm not exactly the skinny type. Like I said, I've always been quite big and quite broad. Um, especially, you know, there were a lot of girls like my coach said in the training squad who are a lot smaller than I was so it'd be difficult to think that actually I have and have an eating disorder because I don't look conventionally what like what someone with an eating disorder would look like but I still had so many health problems from it so my bone density is much weaker even now um, and then I was you know I was skipping periods because of it as well which is just not mm. normal and it just did, got to um, point oh go on. no so I was gonna say did a uh... You mentioned uh, the low bone density, mm -hmm. potentially sort of minor osteoporosis and so on. 
Uh, was that linked potentially to the vomiting and the malnutrition? Yes, Actually, like was, low calcium levels and stuff. Yeah, I was I was told by the practitioner I was seeing at the time that it was. So that <laughs> that felt quite bad. <laughs> it's quite likely the stress fracture would have been um, partially contributed to, uh, partially attributed to that. Um, yeah. To that condition. Yeah, I mean, when I was. Uh, 19 probably I went a whole year well I don't know how old was I in 2017 so 1920 I went a whole year without my periods just because I'd lost I think I'd lost something I can't remember the exact numbers but um, I'd lost so much weight that my periods just stopped and but yeah I still wasn't looking skinny I wasn't looking bony or scrawny I still looked muscly because I was an athlete mm. um but I was having all these other health complications. Um, and yeah, I'm still getting told <laughs> by my coach to lose weight. And I think looking back, it is kind of, it is, I don't think fault's the right word, but I should have set, let someone in the pentathlon system know that I was going through this. It was actually uh, an s coach and a swimming coach, because obviously swimming coaches see everything, you're in a swimming costume, who said, you're looking a lot smaller than you were six months ago. Is everything okay? should you go and see this person? And that's what, you know, I kind of, I didn't feel, I think obliged is the wrong word, but I kind of felt I owe it to them for looking out for me and from my past to go and see the practitioner that I went to see. Um, in hindsight, it probably would have been a good idea to then turn around to my pentathlon coaches and say, actually, I'm seeing practitioner, this is what's happening. Um, nor do I blame the coach for asking me that because he had no idea what's going on. And again, I think it's one of those things where we're in, we're in control of our own behavior. I mean, environment you're in doesn't help, but also it's how I reacted to that myself. I could have been a lot more mature and a lot cleverer about it, um, but it's kind of, it's in the past now, so. <laughs> I mean, I suppose when you were, when you were going through these cycles, and I'm sure it wasn't a pleasant experience, obviously, mm -hmm. like being sick or under eating and all these sort of things, overtraining. But um, I suppose you were seeing some positive benefits in your performance. But when mm. the medical complications came in, did you mention your period? You mentioned, I know there's plenty of other problems that can come with, um, with this condition. What was your internal thought process then? Was it one off, oh God, this is a real problem? Or did you still, at, at the time, were you still thinking, Oh, um, oh, something to worry about. This is just something that happens. This is part of being an elite athlete. Or were you were you always aware that there was a problem, even though you wouldn't admit it to other people? Yes, I I was fully aware. Uh, when I so when I very first had problems, sort of age 15, 16, I was completely unaware it was a problem. I was just like, no, this is normal, everyone does it. Um, but when it got to 19, 20, 2017, and I'd been through all of it before, I knew full well. That it, I should this was not good for me but I know other friends and other people who have had had eating disorders and they've all said similar things and that your mind is completely split in two there is your logical brain that says this is not good for you you need help this is an eating disorder and then you have the eating disorder mind which is just like no you don't look skinny you've just eaten a cupcake you've just eaten you know your bowl of cereal was too big which was one I had often um you know you've had more than two biscuits today it was stuff like that where I was just like oh you've eaten too much you need to burn them off or um 
I'll, I'll take this opportunity now to say I didn't actually, you know, the throwing up wasn't a regular occurrence. It wasn't every day. It wasn't every week. What would happen is I would starve myself so much by eating nowhere near enough that I needed to suit six hours of training a day that the, when we had days off, my body would play catch up and I'd just eat and eat and eat and binge eat. And that's when I felt so guilty for eating all this food, even if it was just like, uh, for example, like I could eat just like a whole packet of apples and just be like, oh, I've eaten way too much. And then be like, just, you know, pop off to the bathroom quickly. Um, mm. It was the days when I would just eat excessively because I hadn't eaten enough during the week that, and that I just, I'd feel awful. My stomach would feel bloated, uh, that I'd just be like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable. And also you've eaten all, all these many calories. What's everyone gonna think, at you, think of you when you go back to training tomorrow? They're all gonna look at you and discuss, you know, it's, it's completely irrational thinking. It's completely logical thinking. Cause you know, my, my teammates, they were all thinking about themselves and what they were doing and the training they had to do. They weren't thinking, oh, Sarah, looks bigger than she did on Friday like it's not looking back on it you know all these thoughts just seem ridiculous now but at that moment in time especially when you're in an environment where you are literally you're training with your teammates and your friends but also you're competing with them for a place on a squad and eventually you're competing with them at competition you know you're I'm, I was just constantly comparing myself to all these other girls um especially you know after the comments like like my coach said for example and I was just I was never thinking about myself I was always thinking like oh can I beat this girl can I beat this girl what can I do you know what can I do to be better than these girls rather than what can I do to improve myself and I think it's you know it's kind of not uncommon in individual sports to be in that mentality when you're so young um, and I think the ones who are successful, you know, the really top elite athletes are the ones who go, no, this is what I need to do to improve rather than comparing themselves to other people. But that was my problem at the time. And then I think just after months, months of this, it just, I just got so exhausted about feeling so crappy all the time. I just kind of decided my time in elite sport and my time in that culture with all that pressure was just done. So August, August, 2018, I was just like, you know what? It's been a crappy year. I'm just going to walk away. And it was it was really hard to walk away from it because obviously I loved the sport. And then my parents and all those people who had supported me all those years, I felt like I was letting them down. And I felt like I was letting myself down and like it was a huge disappointment. Mm. So the past two years for me have just been about completely recovering from all that, recovering from the eating disorder, sort of building up my confidence, built, you know, creating a new identity, reinventing myself. And actually now I've got to the point, for example, where I'm talking to you <laughs> about my experiences. And I'm actually really proud of where I am now and from kind of coming through what I've what I have been through. Well, yeah, no, exactly. I think you should never feel like shame for having a sort of mental health issue or eating disorder or any sort of medical mm. problem full stop and for, I mean, for so long there's been that stigmatism in yeah. society and I mean it's, it's people like you and said like Freddie Flintoff and people who come out and just speak about it and suddenly I mean once that's put out in the conversation um, it's very rarely met with any negativity or mm. um, problems it's more or even skepticism it's more met with 
people just want to learn more once it's put out there people yes. learn more understand it more and obviously the only way for in any topic society to move forward is just to learn more and I mentioned I mentioned to people today that I was talking about bulimia okay and I think people were dismissive dismissive is the wrong word but they weren't um they they, they, they want me to say aware what was what it was what it was what the details mm. were was, if I would have said I'm interviewing someone who's had like a broken leg people go oh I can see where yeah. that, that's affected someone's sports career yeah. Uh, but when you talk about like a mental health issue, I think people are always a little bit scared to kind of talk about it. And yeah. the, only way to, well, the only way to break those doors down is to is to talk about it. And that's what you're doing. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think I'm I'm really grateful for you to sort of reaching out saying, would you like to talk about it? Because no one ever asks the difficult questions. No, you know, when we were discussing this pre-recording, you just you just went straight in with some questions, which I've you know I've never had before. I will say to someone. Oh, I had an eating disorder and they were just like oh I'm sorry and then move on to the conversation they've never been like oh tell me more can you answer this can you answer this and actually I think it's the fact that you're asking the difficult questions that I was just like actually no you know if someone I I knew a bit at university but not that well can just ask me these questions then actually maybe it's time to open up um and I so I sent my responses or you know what I was going to say to you to my parents and to a couple of close friends just so they knew what I was going to say in case they listened and were shocked um mm. but I so like I I can't remember if I've mentioned this now but um at the time the only four people in my life who knew I was going through that are my two parents the practitioner and my best mate who I've known since we were eight years old. So, and she's practically my sister. So they were the only four people who knew what was going on. Um, so I was just like, okay, I think I need to tell some more of my friends now before I share it, before it comes out. And they're just like, oh my God. Um, so it was, and actually, like you said, it was overwhelming positivity. They were just like, and this is what I mean, by the support that I've gotten and the friends that I have now they're all just like you know if you ever have any problems again we're here for you it's not it's not part of who you are it's you know the eating disorder is separate to you I've had just like you said overwhelming positivity and support and I really hope speaking about it encourages more people or you know even one person to reach out to a friend and say actually I'm having this struggle uh, can you, you know, what should I do about it? Because, and I hope they get met with the same responses from their the loved ones, I suppose. Yeah, I've been lucky to have fairly minimal experience with mental health with my family mm. and friends and so on. But I think there's, I think one thing I've, I've noticed is people often fear people will blame themselves for your problems. So say you're mm. suffering with depression um, I know people are often scared to tell their parents or their friends because they'll feel like their parents will feel some of the blame and it's almost like they want to try and hide that from people. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming your parents were one of the first people maybe to find out about the condition. How, how, how was that for you telling yeah. your, your sort of your close family about it? Um, well, the first time around when I was 15, 16, I didn't need to tell them. They just knew um slash uh, my school told them <laughs> because like I said so those teach like you know the teachers I came back once from one summer holidays and the teacher was just like okay this is 
this is dangerous. Um, so it was actually a teacher and my mum, my mum even worked at the school I was at. A teacher went to my mum at school one day when she was working, just like, I've noticed Sarah's lost some weight. Is she okay? Um, and to be honest, a lot of that part of my life is a lot of a blur because I think I was just like, oh, it's done now. Let's just forget about it. <laughs> but like, I do remember being pulled aside by like three teachers who, who shared their concerns. And then I remember going home one day because so my brother and sister also were both at university already at the time. So they're quite a bit older and they'd already gone to university. So it was just me, mum and dad at home because this was this was sort of when we were all still living together. Um, and I just remember coming home and mum and dad were sat at the table. Um, and I was just like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? And then they'd found laxatives that I'd been hiding as well, because that's another thing I did. I bought laxatives for myself um and they were just like you know we need to explain this and then it was just yeah it was I broke down in tears I think um yeah just and then ran from the room my mom broke down into yeah it was just oh it was all, I remember it now <laughs> um it was it was a dramatic day but to be honest you know as much as I re regret the turmoil and everything it put my parents through and my family and my close friends through like I don't think saying I don't regret it is the wrong word, but I've learned a lot from it. And if anything, it brought me closer to my mom and dad. I mean, they're, they're, they're divorced now and have been for many years. Um, but it brought me both, it brought me closer to them both in separate ways. Um, you know, obviously if I, if I could go back and change it, I would in hindsight, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, I learned a lot from it. And as much as there was to lose from it, there was lots of things that I gained. Like I just, my relationship with both of them just strengthened so much. Um, mm. And yeah, I don't know. Well, I suppose um, you mentioned there that your teachers interjected and then you had that sort of intervention with your family. And, but I suppose, I suppose, what do you think would have happened if that wasn't the case, if you weren't picked up at, at an early stage? Um, you're let's just say this was 30 40 years ago people were mm -hmm. less aware about mental health problems maybe your teacher wouldn't have recognized it do you think there would have been a self-limiting phase when you might have found a way yourself or do you think you really you're really lucky that you had that support at the time people recognize it you didn't have to recognize it yourself someone recognized it for you um i don't think i can answer that to be honest i don't i i just simply don't know i think I'm in a very privileged position where I'm in an area of the country that's, you know, very privileged. And we had the resources as a family that I was able to get the help I needed, like the therapy sessions. Um, and even back then, so, you know, mental health is still a stigma. I didn't want to tell anyone at school other than the people I said I've told. Um, but, I'd, yeah, I don't know how I would answer that. I mean, I think I'd be I'd be lying if I denied the fact that there are days where I felt like I wanted to commit suicide, but not strong enough to ever go through with it or, um, or you know. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that was just always that bit of hope at the and that little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I, like I said, I was extremely lucky to have very, very supportive, loving, caring parents, which isn't the case for everybody. And 
part of me was kind of doing it for them because I was just like no you they they always told me you will get better you will get through this which maybe is where some of the determination comes from and some of the determination for the injury came from um but I think my parents definitely just they just gave me so much hope and they were just like no you will get through this and I was just like actually you know as I was doing it for them as much as I was doing it for myself yeah no of course I think um I may have always said it's so important these conversations are had mm. and people like you speak out and particularly like celebrities have more of a following and influence yeah um I mean as a country we're getting pretty good now when it comes to like first aid with loads yeah. of, like, every, every workplace has a first aid a defibrillator but people aren't taught in how to recognize you might know the recognize you might be able to recognize the early signs of a stroke or a mm. heart attack um like can people recognize the early signs of bulimia or yeah. depression or suicidal tendencies and yeah. if we oh, uh, that's I mean that is the biggest killer in young people is mental mm. health problems so if 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 you want to save young lives you've got to really have first aid for mental health really yeah and I think it's it's nice to see that it is changing as you say it is shifting there's a huge momentum in research especially with mental health and sport which I'm really lucky to be a part of and have my research uh, out there and be part of a research team that's you know working on it but I think I sent a message to one of my friends telling telling them that I was doing this podcast and I said actually one of the things I'm terrified about is that what if people think I'm making it up what if people don't believe me or what if people think I'm just doing this for attention and for me to have that thought, I think shows a lot about our culture. For me to go, oh my God, what if people think I'm lying or making it up? I mean, that culture needs to change. If, I, if anyone comes forward and says, I have this mental health problem, I have depression, I have anxiety. I think a lot of people are often too quick to judge and say, you just want attention. And one of my other close friends, and I hope she doesn't mind saying this, also had an eating disorder um you know completely different story but a similar journey and you know a person close to her in her life just said stop doing this you're just doing it for attention and that's not going to help you know so I think that's one of the things I'm scared about and I really hope talking about something like this helps clear the air and helps you know dispel any of the stigma and rumor that goes on about these kinds of things um I also think, um, and I hope this doesn't sound too snobby, but I'm going to say it anyway, that if people do think I'm making it up, I think it's more of a reflection on them. Um, because there are lots of people who go through traumas like this with their mental health that need the support and not not someone saying they've made it up. No, you know, we, we live in a society where we crave evidence for everything. Mm. So... Um... I just look at say religion nowadays <laughs> going mm. back a few hundred <laughs> years if someone told you there was a god um or you shouldn't eat meat or whatever you listen to what yeah. scripture said or what the man told you to do um whereas now there is this well prove god exists there's no evidence says god there's no evidence for this mm. I, need, I need i need categorical evidence and when it comes to say a heart attack um you can give that evidence you can say yeah that their troponin levels raised they've got these symptoms they've clearly got a heart attack or they've they've got here's an mri of a brain i can show you they've had a stroke so for physical conditions there is evidence but so mm. often with mental conditions there isn't that it's clear so subjective diagnostic test yeah which make which is why i think people treat it with skepticism 
and people have to understand more I said the importance of recognizing these conditions yeah and like, like you said the negative effects it can have by not um never mind recognizing it just believing people and just allowing people to have a condition and yeah be, be so be more keen to help rather than criticize would be so important yeah i think um, one of the th oh go ahead no no finish off because i think we're going to round this up soon so fine all uh all i was going to say is just i mean i could talk forever about mental health and sport research but anyway um the one thing i was going to say is that one of the most useful pieces of information i was ever given or advice i was ever given um was you are not your eating disorder you're and I think it's the same for a lot of mental health conditions. You are not your mental health condition. It doesn't define you. You are like, for me, I got told, like you are Sarah Collin. You are who you are. Your eating disorder is just a side effect. Um, it's not who you are. And I think that was one of the most important pieces of advice I was given was the ability to separate myself. Um, Cause now here I am and I'm just like, well, I feel like my eating disorder is almost gone and I'm a completely different person now so yeah okay um I would just like to uh interject here as in my role as a clinical pharmacist and just kind of highlight some of those key symptoms and problems mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm I'm based in a general hospital um I don't mm -hmm. have much exposure to psychiatric pharmacy uh but I know it's sort of the basics to my degree and I had a little bit of reading this morning uh According to NHS, there's between 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the UK who have a diagnosed eating disorder. Right. What's, what is quite interesting there is 25% of those are male. And mm -hmm. when you hear 25%, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm not sure whether that's a low number or a high number. Because you, I mean, I, I think there's this common conception society that obviously women are more prone to it. Because, uh, yep. and a big part of that, I think, is, um, uh, society pressure so you mentioned you were you were in all the girls school and you had sort of broad shoulders now mm. I was in a boys school if I had broad shoulders I'd be showing them off all the time <laughs> um, yeah being being uh doing sport as a man or as a boy generally only improves your physique um people want to be bigger more muscular that's kind of the that's the look people go for and that happens to marry up yeah. so if you are if you are a swimmer you happen to have a good body to go with it and when it comes to the female side, the sort of having the bigger, the more muscular physique, having the more strength doesn't always marry up with sort of societal views on sort of the perfect body and stuff. So I think yeah. that, 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 that explains probably why there is uh, more women than men. But 25% yeah. is still obviously quite a significant proportion. Yeah, I mean, it depends, depends what you want me to reply to that. Because again, like I said, I've done a lot of research on it, so I could go on forever. What I would say is that I found from my research is that boys, men, males, uh, um, what's the right term, uh, don't talk about it as much, don't talk about it as well um, as so much perhaps, as women perhaps do. Perhaps there's actually, there's actually a lot more cases just not um, uncovered perhaps or diagnosed? I, I, I couldn't tell you, I wouldn't know, um, but I think as much as women have been through societal pressures for ages, it's now, it's a few years ago, it definitely started rising for men and the rise of bigorexia, as it's called, which happens a lot in athletes where, um, like like you said yourself, men want to look bigger and muscle, more muscly. There's been a huge intake in gym memberships because, especially by men, because guys want to look big and muscly and strong. So it's almost all that societal pressure that you said women were going under 
has trickled down into men and men are now looking at Instagram photos of like men with eight packs and whatever. Um, so yeah, I think it's, men don't talk about it as better. It's getting better that they are talking about it, but I think it's, yeah, it's just like you said, it's societal pressures, but um, I have, I've got a very good retort to societal pressures. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love to go on now about um, yeah. some of the, perhaps negative effects of like Marvel superheroes and yeah like true societal images where you've been at where as you go back like 50 years and um I think it's actually DC before any nerds come at me but um <laughs> like Batman used to be like quite a normal looking bloke and then he became okay. like this sort of muscular a little bit like decent shape kind of like George Clooney looking guy and then you go yeah. to like uh um, Chris Evans. Chris, Chris, uh, Christian, well, Christian Bale, I think it was, Batman, yeah. who's then was like huge. Um, and you look at the comic books, and it's like all the action figures, and these guys have got like their own, well, these, these figures are like, say, 10 inches tall, but their arms are like about <laughs> five inches wide. It's, it's mental, some of these action figures. Yeah. But that's a whole topic for another day. Uh, <laughs> and I'm wildly well, off track, so I was making quite a serious point from a clinical pharmacy point of view. So I'll go back to that. Um, 40% of people with eating disorders have mm-hmm. bulimia. So it's uh, certainly not a minor condition. It's got very high prevalence. Um, mm. And what is interesting is eating disorders actually have the highest mortality rate um, of all psychiatric disorders. Interesting. And I didn't I didn't know that one, actually. No, neither did I, actually, until, uh, until I looked it up. And as you already mentioned, in young people, it's, it's mental health problems that have the highest mortality rate overall. So mm. it makes sense, therefore, that eating disorders have a massive impact on young lives. Uh, so some of those, uh, so, so those sort of key figures with bulimia, um, it says most common in people aged sort of 13 to 17, uh, which mm-hmm. kind of makes, it makes sense. It kind of aligns with uh, puberty and sort of pressures in society and being in school and that kind of environment um and then when it comes to some of those sort of side effects you've got uh their side the side effects in my opinion can be split into sort of two main well three main camps really obviously you've got the psychiatric issues um mm-hmm. which is sort of, sort of fairly self-explanatory but then you've got problems related to vomiting such as uh tooth decay sore throat uh stomach and throat uh, lining tears ulceration so it's a very serious effect on that mm. uh, and then when it comes more to the sort of malnutrition side of things that relate to that then have as you mentioned the regular periods dry skin dry hair brittle fingernails uh fits and muscle spasms uh i'm not telling you the problems that you've already experienced i'm, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just saying it's more no. people who are listening but no uh, obviously osteoporosis which is interesting as you already mentioned yeah levels and then perhaps most seriously of all, uh, I said this is linked to malnutrition and therefore mm-hmm. electrolyte imbalance. Uh, if you don't, people don't realise, but the electrolytes in your blood play, play a really key role in um, keeping you alive, basically, and in many mm-hmm. very important yeah. roles. So potassium's got a massive role in uh, cardiac function, so how your heart works. Uh, calcium's very important in uh, how sort of your muscles work, how your muscles function your electrolytes affect your nerve endings and so on so actually the massive effect of your electrolyte uh, balance can affect your heart your kidney your bowels um and a combination of this and the physical strain 
your body goes through to vomit repeatedly and so on it can lead to things like heart attacks and kidney failure yeah so this isn't just a oh it's bad you know it's it's a bad psychiatric problem this isn't just like a, oh it's a bad uh you get a horrible side effects and you get very skinny and you might not like eventually towards the end stage of bulimia you might not look as good as you wanted and you might have slightly dry hair this isn't a, this is a condition that directly leads to to death and yeah. serious issues so i would implore anyone who might recognize any of these side effects um or might know someone who could have it and if you can recognize it as perhaps your teachers did and you had your swimming coaches did at times mm. i mean not only are you perhaps improving someone's life you're also potentially saving someone's life so uh i would implore anyone to go and get more information uh, i will post some links uh with the podcast and i'm sure you'd be happy to talk to people if they wanted to contact you and ask questions yeah absolutely um and yeah i think it's really important and that's coming from someone who like i said doesn't have too much knowledge about psychiatric issues and clinical pharmacy but said you yeah. see these effects in a day-to-day well, running a hospital kudos, kudos for doing your research i'll give you that <laughs> that's partly my degree but i did very much <laughs> okay so um i'm conscious of time and what i've decided is i would quite like to have you on again at some point in the future and maybe talk okay. more about your academic um side of things because yeah of course i think i do a massive injustice if i said right there's two minutes on the clock uh talk about all your knowledge of the world of sports so i think we'll save that for another time but i would like just to touch upon where you are now so you've had you've had your rise uh from a sporting sense uh mm-hmm. and then you've also had the rise of your mental health problem you then uh, had your success in sport you then walked away from the sport and uh, from a mental health point of view, your condition's fairly well managed. I said you can't be cured, yep. but you're managed now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where do we find you now? Obviously, you're no longer an elite athlete. What are you doing instead? Huh. Right. Well, first of all, I don't even call myself an athlete anymore. I, I still swim and run. Um, I, I mean, even in, in lockdown, I ran a marathon just for the fun of it. <laughs> but I don't, I don't put any pressure on myself with sport anymore. I, I have no expectations of myself in sport. And like I said earlier in the podcast, um, it's just made me fall in love with sport again. And it's reminded me why I do it in the first place. Because, you know, the water especially is my happy place. I, you know, I love being in the water. It's very freeing. And I love being in the fresh air running. Um, where I'm at now, I am, the way I like to describe my job is that I put, I find stickers to put on fast cars. I'm working for a company who is in motorsport sponsorship. So I essentially contact companies uh, who would like to spend vast amount of money putting a tiny sticker on a fast car, which is, and that's pretty cool. Cause I never, I never thought I'd be um, interested in motorsport, but um, it was actually watching the drive to survive documentary on Netflix. If anyone's watched it, um, that actually really got me into it. And I watched it for in preparation for the interview for this job. And it's the biggest winging, uh, I've ever done of just <laughs> talking about motorsport but yeah so that's that's what I'm doing now uh, the other half of me is I'm I'm still a researcher I'm part of a research team uh, called the play it, uh, which is part of the play it forward play it forward project uh, which is all about athletes and ex-athletes who are also academics uh, who essentially uh, took their own experiences with elite sport and put it into research um, 
So yeah, I'm just constantly researching and learning about mental health in sport, essentially. Um, and also just, you know, as, as much as 23 years old feels quite old, you know, we're still young and there's a lot more further, you know, a lot further down the line to go. And like I said, I was planning on moving to Canada, uh, but that's just been delayed by a year. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, no, that's, um, that actually is really interesting. And I, I said, uh, we've had uh, episode uh, six, Sarah Collin, uh, uh, pentathlete, but I'm looking forward to hopefully in the future having Sarah Collin, research consultant, and really talk about uh, your roles in those projects. And also, um, I said, your, edu your roles with your dissertation and kind of the whole he uh, health and wellbeing side that you brought with that. And that'd mm -hmm. be interesting. Uh, so just to finish off then, I always like to try and gain, uh, obviously I've gained so much in this already, but I like to gain some specific <laughs> advice from a guest. Okay. Is there, any, is there anything you can give me personally? Um, well, it just depends very much on uh, what you're like as a person, I suppose. But my any advice I'd give to anyone, which I wish I had learnt a lot sooner, is um, do not care about what anyone else thinks about you. The most important person opinion most important person's opinion who matters is your own so for example going through the whole reinventing journey I've you know the biggest thing for me was realizing who my true friends were and what I really value about myself might as well take this opportunity to say thank you to my friends for doing that who are listening if they are um, like my closest friends and family don't care how good I am at sport and they don't care what I look like they just care if I'm happy and healthy um, so, you know, I like to focus on the things that I'm good at, not what anyone else tells me I'm good at. And it makes me realize, you know, I am actually intelligent. I won awards for my research projects, had my research pod list and all this stuff. Um, so when I've reinforced those things in my brain and just like, no, this is what you think of yourself. I'm just like, oh, I am actually pretty great. So why are you bothering comparing yourself to other people? Why are you letting other people's opinions affect you? And it's actually made me so much proud of myself um and life is just so much better and happier to have that kind of mindset so yeah i'd just say don't compare yourself to other people and don't give a crap about what anyone else really thinks of you i am um, i hate when this happens at the end of a an interview and so many more questions are coming to my mind right now <laughs> I feel like talk about, uh, and <laughs> i don't i don't want to go on too long so uh, i will save those for later date mm -hmm. just to finish um so we always finish with any other business is there anything uh, you'd like to mention from the world of sport from uh, your own experiences you haven't um, got to if there's anything that you wanted to mention honestly we've covered a lot um you've had my whole life story now um well i you know i'm just going to take this opportunity to name a few people mum and dad obviously emma coos who throughout my whole life has been a huge huge support um and the other person I want to thank actually is a lovely woman called Eva Prataluna, who uh, saw the troubles I was going through at university when no one else did. And I don't think I've ever truly thanked her for it. Um, so yeah, just taking the opportunity to say thank you. And also actually more recently as well, the friends who I told I was doing this podcast and this is the first uh, knowledge of my experiences that they've got I want to say thank you for being overwhelmingly positive and supportive like I've said um, 
And again, another quick piece of advice, I put, I place so much value on gratitude and appreciation, hence why I want to say thank you. Um, so always be grateful for, for that kind of thing. Yeah, great. I think out of all the ones I've done so far, this is probably the one I'm most excited to hear people's reaction to. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> if not a little bit scared. Oh. Exactly. But it's the one where I think I'm really looking forward to having those conversations afterwards, like people asking me yeah. more questions or I'm sure people ask you more questions as well. And just sure. having those conversations and uh, so developing people's knowledge on the subject. So that's been really good. Yeah. Okay, so I think on that note, um, I just want to say thank you for being so open. And well, thank you for uh, having me. And I said, I think it's been fantastic. So thanks so much. Well, and you. Sarah Collin, what an absolute legend. I thought Sarah was amazing, and as I've already alluded to, I have to commend her bravery in telling the story the way she did. I must confess, when I approached Sarah, I did so based entirely on her career in athletics and her overcoming a hip stress fracture, which perhaps is the perfect injury to discuss on a podcast entitled Hips and Dips. I had no prior knowledge of her struggles with bulimia, but I'm so happy that I could provide her with a platform to tell her story. I purposefully didn't mention bulimia in the show notes or in the introduction because I felt it was of vital importance that her story was told in her own words by her, and for me to paraphrase would only do her disservice. I fall into the classic British male stereotype of not talking about emotions or mental health. That classic response of, I'm fine, don't worry about it, is never too far from my lips, but the severity of mental health should never be underestimated. This isn't an issue that affects elite athletes or athletes in general, but can affect everyone and doesn't discriminate based on gender, race or wealth. One in six adults have a common mental health disorder. To put that in terms sports people might comprehend, if we took Wembley's 90,000 seat capacity, 15,000 of those fans would meet the criteria for mental health disorder. That's a staggering image. The best way to help each other is to educate each other, educate ourselves in how to recognise these symptoms and how to help those in need. As I said at the start, more information is available at the NHS website and also at beateatingdisorders.org.uk. Uh, and you can always contact me or Sarah. So I'm available on at hips underscore and underscore dips with a Z or my personal Instagram, which is at Mansfield Curtis. Uh, or Sarah can be reached at, at Sarah underscore Colin 30. I really hope this can help stimulate other conversations about mental health in sport. But regardless, I'll be back next week with another episode. And all I can do is wish everyone a happy Christmas and hope everyone can subscribe, leave comments, leave reviews, all the stuff that really helps get the podcast going. In the meantime, stay educated and perhaps most importantly, stay safe. <laughs>